Welcome to the Loop Ventures Neurotech Podcast. This is Doug Linton. On today's episode, we talk to Jeff June, the CEO of Ischemia Care, a company creating unique tools to help medical professionals treat stroke patients more effectively. 200,000 strokes happen a year, and 140,000 of them result in death. We actually don't know the cause for many of these strokes, and Ischemia Care is trying to solve that problem. Jeff and I talk about what happens during a stroke, how Ischemia Care's technology works, and we even get into advice for medtech founders. And with that, I bring you Jeff June. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much, Doug. Very excited to be here today. So maybe to start, it'd be great to hear a little bit about your background and how you got involved in Ischemia Care. So think of my career as three different timelines that all overlap. So first and foremost, just kind of going back to the early part of my career, it's very heavily financial and operationally based. So in one segment of my life, I've spent probably about 20 years starting and running high growth companies, been a founder in multiple companies, depending upon how you group the management teams together, there's between three or five of them and they span everything from retail, real estate, high tech industries, IT, as well as medical device. So that's about one third of my career. The other third of my career is I've spent probably about 20 years in venture capital and private equity, everything from a very large private equity group that did deals in the hundreds of millions of dollars, all the way down to a $10 million regional venture fund that does a lot of great work in the Midwest. The third act of my career is I spent 15 years as a professor and chair at a, at a university teaching courses from interactive media to engineering and entrepreneurship. And... I think when I think about how I ended up where I am now, I think it's a great path because it seems like everything I did in my life kind of led up to what I do now at Ischemia Care. And if I think back to how I got involved in Ischemia Care, you have all these kind of intersecting career paths and you meet a lot of great people along the way. As you know from your background in venture, when you meet people that have really great ideas, you're really trying to figure out, are these people crazy? Are they geniuses? Or are they somewhere in between? I had the good fortune of meeting the inventors of the technology that's now Ischemia Care probably back in, let's call it the middle 2000s. I would start a discussion with something like in a real simple sense that let's say that you and a friend, you know, you're at a rooftop bar and you're looking out over the city and, you're, and you look at the sky. And this isn't like an optimist or a pessimist, but let's say that you look at the sky and you see the blue in the sky as the sun goes down and somebody else looks at it and sees the gray and maybe somebody else might look at the orange. That's kind of what you're trying to figure out is things always aren't black or white. And I think what I learned from the inventor was he told me two things that really stuck with me. You know, one was that he could use RNA expression to identify cause of stroke, which this is kind of in the very early stages of RNA expression. It was kind of like considered witchcraft back in that. There was very few companies doing it. The other thing he told me that I couldn't believe was that about 40% of all strokes never have a cause determined. I mean, think about that for a minute. Think about fields like cancer, heart disease, any other disease state, where else is it acceptable that you could have 40% of the cases not have a cause determined? I think I've had the good fortune of working with a lot of really great people over my career. And just that story really kind of stuck with me. And then just having a, an inquisitive mind that you want to know more. This is the best part of the story is so in any company that I've ever started, you kind of, you know, you always have this saying, it's called going in like you don't know anything. In this case, it was pretty clear I didn't know anything. And so I happened to go into a 
an emergency room. And this is so funny is that, you know, I just went in and said, you know, I want to talk to somebody about stroke. And it's funny. So, you know, you're there with kind of like the gunshot wounds and the other things that kind of come rolling into an emergency department. And I happened to meet a guy that took two to three hours out of his day and explained to me all the intricacies of stroke. It's funny. I still use in my presentations today things that I learned in just conversationally talking with this guy. And he was just so passionate and he cared so much about stroke and patients. I could clearly see that there was a real problem in understanding stroke and treating stroke. Well, the funny thing is, when you fast forward, probably, you know, now it's been 10, 15 years since that initial meeting, that person became chairman of the stroke committee for the American Heart Association, as well as first author on the stroke guidelines. So we built a really great relationship around this. And he became the lead PI in our major clinical trial. So we ran the base clinical trial that in just over four years recruited over 1,700 patients. Amazing. Hopefully that's not too much to take in in the first uh, five minutes of the call. That's how I ended in ischemia care. And the, and the last thing I'll add is that like, I got a lot of other stories to that about great people along the way. And, and I think the thing I learned about this, that maybe I knew from all the other ventures I had started and been involved with, but, you know, everybody works hard when they start a company. There's just certain moments where you find you're doing the right thing and you kind of make your own luck, so to speak. I know that's kind of a catchy phrase, but just at the time when you need it most, the right person or the right thing comes along and can really propel you forward. And that's just one example of all the good fortune we've had along the way. That's a great overview. So there's a few different directions I like to go, but maybe first, before we get into what you're working on specifically at Ischemia Care, could you tell us a little bit about just what happens with the body when someone has a stroke? Just what mechanically or physiologically is going on? If I were to really boil it down in a simple way, what we do is that we work with RNA expression. And for people that know nothing about molecular genetics, it's real simple. So everybody sees tests like 23andMe. Those are DNA-based. So if you're familiar with kind of like those type of tests, DNA is what you're born with. And so it never changes. And so whether you're getting some kind of screening test for a disease, they look at DNA and it's in your system. Also in your system is something called RNA. And think of RNA changing in response to certain things. And so what happens when you have a stroke is that all these immune responses going off because the body has detected something is wrong. And that thing that's wrong is that there's been a disruption of blood flow to your brain. And in a stroke, what happens, you have this disruption of the blood flow to your brain that can cause a permanent neurological deficit. So all these immune responses are your brain telling your body that something is wrong and we got to fix it. And so what we're able to do at Ischemia Care is that we just take a simple blood draw when a person has a stroke and we detect all these changes in the blood. And so we're able to tell clinicians something that they can't see because the way stroke is diagnosed today is that clinicians look at you, they look at your family history, they can use imaging. But yet, despite all those advances, 40% of the time you don't know a cause. So simply think of what your brain is in this circumstance your brain is like the traffic cop. It's telling your body what's going on. And through looking at blood, we can then communicate that to the clinician. It makes a lot of sense. So you're solving the problem of, you know, 40%, almost half the time when someone has a stroke, there's just no known cause. So you're trying to alleviate that. And by doing that, is the goal then to empower the physicians to better treat or better help people recover from the stroke? Or what is the output then? 
there's a significant number of strokes with unknown cause. The reason for that is, so imagine for a minute, you have clinicians that are incredibly well-trained. I'll give you one example of one cause. So there can be many causes to a stroke, but one that's really difficult is something that's called atrial fibrillation. So imagine that your heart for a minute has four chambers and those chambers are always beating in a way that makes sense for you. What happens in atrial fibrillation is that those four chambers come out of sync and blood can pool in one of them and it throws off a clot. Here's what happens when the clinician looks at you for your stroke. They, they see you've had a stroke. They can intervene with TPA or they can do some kind of way to remove the clot, but it doesn't solve the problem of what caused it. And so when the clinician's looking at you and they're doing heart monitoring in the hospital, the problem is, is that atrial fibrillation can be something that's called paroxysmal or occult which means it can be sporadic. It can be intermittent. It could have just happened in that one instance. And half of all fib is this paroxysmal occult. And so what ends up happening is if that cause of stroke goes undetected, that patient is at a five times greater likelihood for a recurrent stroke versus if the clinician can find that, that patient gets a 60% risk reduction in having a recurrent stroke just through regular medical management. The other thing, and not wanting to throw too many numbers out there, is that 80% of all strokes can be prevented. So 80%, if you can imagine that. Building on what you said, really what we do is that we just give the clinicians a tool. There are no blood tests for the cause of stroke. We just give the clinicians a tool that can help them manage their workflow to most effectively find the cause of stroke. And so it empowers them to treat the patients better. It helps the patients kind of understand what happened, that if you've ever had a family member have a stroke and they don't know what the cause is, it's quite a traumatic experience, and it causes quite a amount of distress for the family that have to care for this patient and anxiety around this idea of it's not a question of if you're going to have another stroke in some of these circumstances where they don't know the cause. It's a question of when. And so it's just empowering the clinicians and the patients to better manage something to get to the right outcome. It's a really powerful tool. As you sell that tool into the healthcare system, is it something that patients are aware of and they say to their clinician or a family member say, hey, I'd love to try ischemia care? Or is it something that the doctors know as a tool, almost like a SAS tool that they rely on because they know how useful it is? It's probably the later. You know, most people don't plan on having strokes, so they don't really know the technologies or the way the patient is going to be treated. It would be great if people did know that and understand it. But what we rely on is that we ran a, a massive clinical trial. We ran the largest and most successful clinical trial ever conducted. So imagine you as a startup company, you start this clinical trial. And as I mentioned, we got the chairman of the stroke committee involved and we recruited all these great leaders in stroke. And the reason that we were so successful in the clinical trial is that we recruited 1,700 patients in over 20 sites in just four years. And if you're not familiar with clinical trials, that is light speed. And it's because the clinicians could see this is a tool that they can use in the near term relative to things coming into the market that they could use to diagnose and, and treat stroke better. So typically our test gets adopted and just kind of sharing with you where we are is that we just are concluding the base clinical trial and we're launching our testing in six hospitals right now as we speak on this podcast. And so it's through clinical awareness, it's through the power of your data that you publish, it's through getting those practicing clinicians involved in the development of your test. Well, what we do is that we've developed a great technology based upon RNA expression. The real strength of what we did is that we went into these 20 hospitals and mapped out patient care because patient care in any field 
can be very difficult. But especially in stroke, every hospital may have their nuance on how they treat stroke patients. Some hospitals may do everything that's imaginable to understand the cause of stroke in that patient. Some clinicians, because you know, 40% of the time that may not work, they may work on more on managing risk factors. And this isn't a statement of judgment on who's right and who's doing things the right way. This is just how we found that care for stroke patients is being practiced. But what we found is that we have something to offer to both of those, that if you're a clinician that understands the things that you do, and I'm not saying they do a minimum workup, I'm not saying anything disparaging, but if you're in that group that manages risk factors and has difficulty going beyond some of the things that are done in triaging the patient, we have something to offer you to show you where to look. If you're a clinician that does an excessive amount of work because your hospital supports that and you can do that amount of work, we have something for you too. We can help stratify that patient so that you can target your efforts to the things that are most likely going to be successful. As you go through the current test with the six hospitals that you're working with, assuming that the technology continues to look favorable, efficacy looks good, what's the next step? How do you go from those six hospitals to a majority, hopefully, of hospitals in the U.S. having this technology? Because it seems like it's extremely valuable. So it's funny. Whenever you start a company, I don't know if the right word to use because I have three kids is kind of life lessons or things you learn along the way. First of all, we've got an incredible amount of support from the original inventors of the technology. And our commitment to them was always that we would do everything within our power to increase the prevalence of the technology. And so imagine we license the technology, like we're competing against major pharma and device companies. And here's this guy that shows up and actually wins the licensing rights. So I always honored my commitment that we were going to increase the prevalence of the technology. Now you flip that over to the business side of, you know, how do we make that happen? So right now, today, what we do is that we're what's called a CLIA laboratory developed test. It's governed under CMS. So that's our regulatory body, call it. And so we're now approved to offer that testing through our laboratory. So within these six hospitals, they send it to us. We run it on a microarray. And a microarray is a very complex tool. It generates a lot of information. It's very difficult to scale that. What we're working on right now is that we're going to reduce that test to a much smaller platform that eventually we hope can be performed within the hospital laboratory. And so our path to scale on the technical side comes from increasing the efficiency in what we have and pushing it to the hospital laboratory. Our growth in terms of scale is going to come from a couple of different avenues. First and foremost, we want to prove that we can be successful and improve care within these six hospitals. The base clinical trial is 20 hospitals, so we're going to continue to expand out through our clinical trial network. Some of those hospitals are actually called the mothership for up to 26 other hospitals. So we'll continue to work within the network that we know, but then also we'll continue to push our technology out to other hospitals and leading stroke centers. So if this isn't getting too much into the weeds, think of it this way. Think of there's about 6,000 hospitals in the U.S., and about 1,200 of those are what's called primary stroke centers or comprehensive stroke centers. So in a real simple sense, these hospitals are certified to care for stroke patients. And so we'll continue to work our way through those hospitals. We're going to continue to drive down the cost of our tests so that it's a no-brainer that it can become standard of care and used on every patient. The other area of our growth is that while today we're talking with you about cause of stroke, imagine everything that occurs in a stroke patient's 
care pathway from beginning to end. From the minute they have a stroke, there's decisions that are made all along that pathway. I'll give you an example. A patient has a stroke. First of all, you have to know whether they had a stroke. So that's yes or no. That's different than cause. So we're currently developing testing out of our clinical trial for stroke yes, no. Then you have to make a decision as to what type of intervention is going to provide for the best recovery of that patient. Call it so some of you may have heard of TPA, so a drug intervention that dissolves the clot or a clot retrieval. That's another decision that needs to be made. Where we fit right now in the care continuum is this cause of stroke idea. And so we focus within that in the hospital setting. And then the fourth thing that we do is that in addition to stroke yes, no, there's a number of things that get confused with stroke. So imagine you're in an emergency room and a patient comes in is unconscious. That could be an ischemic stroke, right? Disruption of blood flow to the brain. But it could also be something, putting in real simple terms, like a, a heart condition called syncope or a seizure or a migraine or epilepsy. And you got to be able to sort that out from stroke. So the answer is where our growth comes from. It's the prevalence of our existing testing. It's making that testing more available both within our laboratory and within the points where decisions are made within the hospital network. And it's continuing to address these questions that are very difficult across the entire cycle of the care of that patient. It sounds like there is a long-term data play that makes your technology more intelligent in terms of helping doctors correctly diagnose maybe more quickly than they can now with current methods. That's absolutely right. Some of the things that I always say is that while on one hand we're a laboratory company, our reality is that we're a data company. Like you think about the output of a microarray, it comes off in something that's called a cell file. And so for every patient, we look at between 30,000 and 60,000 genes that are expressed. So we capture all of that information. And through our clinical trial, we collected an extensive amount of data on all of these 1,700 patients throughout their care. And so we can look at this. Uh, giving you an example, when we go in and we work with a hospital, I think the real power of what we have is that, one, we can tell them a significant amount about this patient through the biology of our testing. But also, if they were in our clinical trial, we can tell them quite a bit about how they care for patients and maybe where in using this testing it can improve care. And so we're always thinking about the data aspects of what we do. And as you know, you know, within the healthcare system, there is such a large push into data. You know, a lot of people like to use the buzzwords like machine learning and artificial intelligence. And those are really important, but you got to have a context around it. Your context is how do you use that data to solve a significant problem? And to your point, you know, our data is really unique in a way is that we've tied together biology with clinical care to really explain precision medicine or personalized approach to stroke that's never existed before. I'm thinking back to an earlier part of our conversation when you mentioned it's not only about diagnostics post-stroke, but there's also an opportunity to help prevent strokes. Maybe they're a recurrent stroke or maybe it's even an initial stroke. And I'm curious, because I imagine that's database, that preventative piece. How do you leverage data, like a more holistic picture of a patient's history and identify markers that say this stroke could have been prevented and then leverage that knowledge maybe for other patient populations? So that's a great question, Doug. And what you have to think about is not just what you think you can do, but what you can prove. And so where we started with the base clinical trial was 
known and defined strokes. So we ran this huge trial where we recruited stroke patients. The other thing that we did is that we recruited controls. So the first step to understanding of how you can be predictive and preventative in the future is really understand what do the people look like that look like stroke patients. So the idea behind running a controlled clinical trial is what was the difference between the people that actually had the event and the people that looked like they would have the event? And so when we use terms like that look like the event, a lot of times stroke patients have a lot of common risk factors that are prevalent across the entire population. You know, there are people with high blood pressure, there are people with diabetes, there are people who smoke. All of these are factors for stroke risk, but why does one person have a stroke and another person doesn't have a stroke? And so what we're able to do with our clinical trial is we understand what the difference is between a person that has a stroke and a person that doesn't have a stroke. And so many people, their first experience with this, and so when you go back to where we were discussing the idea of, you know, what is something that's confused with stroke? Well, there's also another category that's called transient ischemic attack. So a transient ischemic attack means that you've had this neurological deficit, but by the time you got to the emergency room, it's resolved. You had numbness in your arm or you lost your vision or an inability to talk or you were unconscious and now you're in the emergency room and that's resolved itself. So we've included those patients in our clinical trial. And in order to be predictive, you have to understand what are the events that are going to drive that person down that pathway of a potential stroke. And so what we try to do is that we try to understand through biology and comorbidities and this idea about the larger data play, how are we able to help clinicians identify patients more than just looking at their risk factors? Who is really at a risk for stroke? Giving you an example of some of the work we're doing right now is that we look extensively at patients that have specific comorbidities and we look at them in populations of both stroke and not stroke and try to really understand the similarities. And so you know, hopefully a test like ours can be used when somebody comes in with that numb arm. And typically that's their first experience with, I may have a stroke, I may need to make lifestyle changes, I may need to be on a certain type of medication. But I think you're absolutely right that the way the field of stroke needs to go is that it needs to move in this, this direction of preventative medicine. And if I may, I'll give you one more example. So the other thing you learn when you found companies is you become like a history of the science and a history of life and a history of ventures. And we have this great board member named Don Harrison, who was chief of cardiology at Stanford for 23 years. He's a prolific publisher in atrial fibrillation and cardiology. And one of the things that when you look at cardiology is that back in the 50s, heart attacks were thought to be bolts of blue and that they were unpreventable and untreatable. And you think about where we are with stroke today, it's very similar. People can't associate the cause of stroke. They can't think about the things that are going to be predictive of stroke. But I think through the advances that we make and other people in the field of stroke are making right now, I think you're going to see similar advances between what occurs in cardiology or what had occurred in cardiology and what will eventually occur in stroke. I'm really glad that you're working on the problem of both diagnosis and prevention. It's an important problem. So, Jeff, I guess I have just one last question, which is maybe just a bigger picture question. As you think about your career and your experience with health tech, I'm curious for other health tech entrepreneurs, what are like the one or two key lessons that you've learned from being in the space that come first to mind that you would share to those entrepreneurs? The first thing I would point to is people. 
my family is the most important thing to me. My wife has been my life partner for the last 27 years. And we have a sign outside of our door. So imagine you have this slate sign that we got at some art fair and I had to write on that for our 25th wedding anniversary. Our life doesn't have to work for everybody. It just has to work for us. And my wife comes from a background of, she's a CPA by training. She's taken a company public. She's run a company in mainland China. And if anybody understands the challenges and what we go through, it's absolutely her. And she's, you know, steadfast, always in my corner and always cheering me on and on the best of days and the worst of days. And we have three wonderful kids and, you know, we've made it all work. Two of them are in college now and we have one on the way. And so that's one segment of people in your life. But I think the other thing that other people can take away from this is that build great groups of advisors. I told the story about how I had met the chairman, you know, who eventually became the most important person in stroke, chairman of the stroke committee and first author on the guidelines. Building that relationship with him and other people, it only happens if you're willing to take risks with the people that you meet, meaning that wander into an emergency room. When you're doing something in stroke or cardiology, find the person that is the most knowledgeable or influential or significant, however you define it in that space, and build a relationship with that person. Because a lot of times when you're working on these problems, like you know, when, when I heard 40% of strokes never have a cause, it was really difficult to understand. And a lot of people didn't understand it either. But you find people that are willing to invest in you and invest in solving that problem. And I don't mean invest money in you solving that problem. I mean, they're willing to put a lot of their time and talent behind it. That's when you know that you really have something. And you know, you build these great relationships with, let's call them advisors, but I know it sounds kind of hokey, but they become part of your family. They're the people that you talk to the most. They're the people that you spend the most time with and that you're always trying to recruit more of those people into your life. And they're the type of people when you know, what you're doing is incredibly difficult and things don't go right. They're right there to pick you up and cheer you on and tell you to keep going. And they're right there with you every step of the way. Like, I think that's probably been the number one thing. And that's also carried over into investors. And so if I may just build on that a little bit more, we didn't talk much about investors in the company, but I'm, I've invested in every round personally in the company. I think that's shown our investors a great deal of strength and belief in the company. These same people have followed on and invested in every round along with me. And so one of the things that's really unique about us is that we accomplished as much on 10 million raised as comparable companies took 60 to 100 million to accomplish. And I think that only happens when you have a great team of people. And so first lesson is you you tie it all together. You got to have the right structure in your personal and your professional life. And it's got to be consistent across it all. And you got to have people that really believe in what you're doing. Like when things are going well and things aren't going well, they're right there with you and they're helping you carry the torch. And, you know, on days when you can't do it, they're there to pick things up and carry you along even further. So that would probably be the first important lesson I would probably share with people. Before I kind of just randomly pick another one, do you have one that you think would be good, Doug, that would be helpful to people in a category? The team one, I think, is one that always comes to mind first for me. The other thing that I think we always tell entrepreneurs is more around vision and messaging, which is, you know, once you have that team and once you have that infrastructure in place to support you, you actually can't remind the team, your investors, the public, your customers about your vision and what you stand for enough. 
In fact, I actually think most companies think they do it all the time and too much, but almost no company does. So one thing we always say is, you know, reiterating your message much more often than you think you need to is one of the other most important things that you can do because people forget there's a lot going on in everybody's lives. But if you can consistently convey what you're about, what your company stands for, eventually it takes hold and it just takes longer than most people think to take hold. You know what else, Doug, you bring up a great point. And if I could add one thing to that, it's not just about reminding people, like they go to your website and it says, you know, improving care of stroke patients. It's really acting on that. Like everything that you do has got to be consistent with that. And I think what we've really ingrained in people is that they've just seen how hard we've worked. Like they've, when I showed up in some of the initial base sites offices, we didn't have a lab. We didn't have a clinical trial. We had nothing. We had no patients enrolled. But I think the common theme was that they always said was that, you know, like we didn't really know if this was going to work, but if something was going to work, it was going to be this one. And it's not just about you carrying that message, but if you were to ask any of the clinicians that we work with, they could tell you exactly what we do and exactly what we're about and how hard we work and how dedicated we are to patient care and that we're with them every step of the way. And so you bring up a great point. And I think the best way to spread that message is you just live it. And eventually people will pick up that message and they'll carry it for you. I think about what we've accomplished and it's far more than what any one person or any website could have told people we're all about. Absolutely. I love it. Actions are louder than words, for sure. How you live it matters. And I think that is great advice to end on, too. So, Jeff, I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Before we wrap up, I have a very important question for you. So I was going to Loop Ventures and I was looking at all the great things that you guys do. I mean, it's really interesting if you go there. And of course, I go look at the team and I scroll over your picture. And so for people who are listening to this, go and scroll over Doug's picture and you'll edit this out if I got the wrong picture. But here's my question. That is Val Kilmer from Tombstone playing. uh, I'm going to blank on his name, but I can actually give you the quote that he's saying that I think he's saying. Is that the scene with Johnny Ringo when he says, you look like somebody just walked over your grave, Johnny Ringo? (laughs) (laughs) It is. You have a good eye for film. I'm a huge Tombstone fan. Val Kilmer as Doc Holliday is probably one of my favorite characters in a movie ever. The way he pulls it off. I could recite probably every one of his one-liners. And one of my favorite is when he confronts Johnny Ringo in that shootout. It's incredible. <laughs> we love that line. So why is that under you? <laughs> You're randomly scrolling over pictures and there is uh, Doc Holliday. So why is that there? We did a thing where, just for fun, we're big fans of gifts as a way to communicate. And we decided for the team, each member of the team would pick a GIF that represents them, who they are. A lot of them are very much movie-based. And so, yeah, that was mine. Awesome. That's a great story, Doug. Well, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. So, yeah, anyone who hasn't seen Tombstone should go watch it immediately. No doubt. (laughs) Yeah, we can end on that note. Jeff, thank you for joining us on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Doug.